millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Me, you know, my testosterone, you know, being born, you know, without the uterus, you know, being born with internal testicles, those don't make me less a woman. It's just the differences that I was born with and I embrace them. So that is the voice of Casta Semenya, and uh, that was an interview that she did with the BBC after the release of her book, The Race to Be Myself, a memoir by Casta Semenya. And uh, a controversial statement, um, I'm sure you, there's a lot of people who have uh, commented on that. On, in fact, there has been a lot of social media around that particular comment and lots <coughs> of social media around lots of other bits and pieces and interviews that have been done over the last couple of weeks, both here in South Africa and around the world around the Casta Semenya issue and this book in particular. And and some quite revealing stuff in the book itself. And we'll talk a little bit about that and other things in this episode. We're going to touch a little bit on uh, some of the interesting uh, doping cases that are happening as well. The world marathon record, which happened a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we'll, we'll touch on some, some of the news after all the excitement of the Rugby World Cup that we've been dealing with over the last uh, couple of months. But uh, let's, uh, Ross, Professor Ross Tucker, of course, here with me as usual. And that comment by Kessler Semenya kind of highlights the very issue that has been in, in uppermost mind of everybody around Cassis Minia. I watched an interview here in South Africa where she talks in detail about the tests that were conducted on her by officials during um, the, 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 her most traumatic period of her life, or literally inserting probes into various parts of her body trying to decide. But this kind of highlights, I wonder whether it highlights her... <sighs> Her belief that she is a woman, and they just, but the testicles are not necessarily an issue. I mean, it's mm. a, it's a complicated one because it's it's. I'm not sure whether she wants people to believe that or whether she believes it herself. She has to believe it, right? Because yeah. the, the whole premise of her career depends on that belief. Mm. So I think that's the first point I'd make. There's been she's she's probably said four or five things that have made headlines in the last two weeks in promotion of the book, mm. and there are two parts to them one is the biological reality which i don't think she represents accurately that statement that we've just played in there is the fundamental thing mm. in the in the context of sport those testes make a big difference <laughs> because okay. they are the things that produce testosterone and testosterone is the hormone that is primarily and largely responsible for the reason that we have to have a woman's category that is ex exclusive for people who don't have male testosterone and male biological advantage makes sense right yeah so so when she when she says that when she says other things and we'll get on to maybe a couple of those she's saying what is necessary in order for her story to remain intact the 
the validity of her career, her athletic career, to remain intact. She so when an interviewer says to Casta Semenya, "Do you have an unfair advantage?" She can cannot say yes. Mm. <laughs> when an interviewer says to her, "Should the athletes who finished fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh in the Olympic Games in 2016 feel unhappy?" She cannot say that they were cheated out of medals. Yeah, because it would in effect be an admission. And so, some of the reaction on social media, I'm I'm not surprised by, but I would say people think about it like, what else is she going to say? Mm. In fact, if you're an interviewer asking that question, do you really expect her to say, absolutely, those women should feel really unhappy because I had an unfair advantage, shouldn't have been in the race? Do you really expect that? Mm. <laughs> so obviously, mm. she's coming out and saying something in defense of her own identity and her career, not gender identity, her athletic identity, right? Mm. Mm. So that's... <laughs> Yeah, so, so, so we'll get on to some of the physiology of it because I think it needs to be corrected because I have read easily a dozen reviews of that book and literally one of them, which was written by Janice Turner in The, the Times, uh, is the only one that has called out the biological fallacy that Semenya is not a woman with high testosterone, mm. but in fact has a difference of sex development that affects males. And so in fact, what we're talking about here is male with normal testosterone, but competing in women's sport. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's an important um, differentiator to make there because I think there's it's always the this differentiator. It is, but I, I've always been under the perception that, uh, before this podcast, in fact, to some extent, that she was, she's always represent, she is closer to being female than she is to being male. But actually, what you're saying is she is in, essentially male in, in every respect. In the context of sport, that's exactly what it is. And that's why mm. that's why the CAS decision went the way that it did, is because World Athletics was able to finally make that case. Mm. That wasn't always the case. And I think your perception is one that's shared by many in the media who I do think should, by this stage, know better. If I'm interviewing some men now on BBC and I'm doing the story, like I would at least think I'm going to understand why there's controversy here. Yeah. And it's not, it's not controversial because you're dealing with someone with high testosterone. You're actually dealing with someone who is, by argument, in the wrong category, competing mm. in a category they should be ineligible for because they have male biological advantage. So just to try and uh, It's piece, not just the testosterone, is it? I no, mean, exactly. Yeah. So... So, so what? And, and if you read the CAS decision, it's all in there, right? Mm. They even name the specific condition because there's a number of these differences of sex development. The one that has been most prominent in sport is called 5-ARD, 5-alpha reductase deficiency. So 5-alpha reductase is an enzyme that we all have in our bodies, except when you have this difference of sex development. And its job is to convert testosterone into another hormone called DHT. If you don't have it because of the deficiency, you can't make DHT. So what does DHT do? DHT is the hormone that is primarily responsible for the creation, if we're going to call it that, or the differentiation of male genitalia. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in these individuals is that they are XY chromosomally. They have the male Y chromosome. Therefore, in utero, there is a signal carried by that chromosome so that those gonads become testes. That's what Semenya is talking about, my internal testicles. Mm. That's literally like your XY with testes, testes that produce normal levels of testosterone, testosterone that can do its job in your body, which is to say male development, with that one exception. And that one exception applies to the genitalia. And so biologically, for the purposes of sport, the person is 
male advantaged Mm -hmm. fully. The only thing they don't have is the male genitalia that allows the identification of sex at birth. You know, sometimes mm. some people call it assigned at birth. It's identified. <laughs> the yeah. doctor says it's a boy or it's a girl, sometimes before birth. But they don't always have that because you get, you, you're born effectively with ambiguous genitalia. And so then the doctor might often say it's a girl. But then at puberty, things start to look different because there's still testosterone. And that testosterone still does its, its job as it would in a male because, well, not as it would in a male, as it does in a male. So going back, I mean, we, we talked, we've done this in past podcasts where we look back into how they used to identify male females back in the mm. 70s and 80s, just a case of like, take <coughs> take your pants off and let's see what genitalia you have. But it's not, it's not simple as that. Yeah, and then it needn't be as crude as that. And then no. if it's as crude as that, you, there's, a, there's a risk that you'll run into problems because mm. It's not as straightforward because in this specific condition, the difference is the genitalia don't appear typically male. Mm. In fact, might more often lean towards appearing typically female mm. Mm. because the signals that make male genitalia internal and external are not there mm. because of this deficiency of an enzyme. That that, that would make sense, right? Yeah. So effectively, yeah. you break the you break the pathway, the communication pathway. So you got all the testosterone in the world, but you can't do that one thing with it. But mm. everything else you can do. And that that was fundamental at CAS, is the, the CAS experts were arguing against the many experts that this deficiency of this one enzyme and therefore this one hormone is not material to sport. So Menu's team had to argue that it was. But I'll tell you, the, the, the reason I think it's interesting is in 2016, I think it was, when they first went to court about these conditions, it wasn't Semenya, it was an Indian athlete called Duty Chand. Mm-hmm. The policy then was called the hyper-high androgenism. So that's male hormone policy. And the whole argument then was women with high testosterone. And that's the position I think that you're still, you were talking about earlier. It's like yeah. you've thought of Semenya as a woman with high testosterone. All the media, the BBC, that that clip comes from, same story. They all frame it as this is a woman in women's sport with high testosterone. Natural advantage, yes or no. And what changed in the Semenya case, and I distinctly remember receiving these documents because for disclosure, I was one of the expert witnesses. And we got these documents. And for the first time, World Athletics had come at it from the other perspective and said, this is not about women with high testosterone. Mm. We're not interested in someone who's XX with ovaries, not testes, and who has high levels of testosterone. We're interested in individuals who are XY, who have testes, who have male testosterone, and who can use it. So those mm. were the four things. And it was, a, it was a, I guess in a way, like especially in hindsight, obvious shift but it was the most important shift because all of a sudden it became less about natural advantage, excluding some women, not others, and saying, actually, this is fundamentally about who belongs in women's sport. Is it mm. females or males? And they they finally, I mean, they, their argument in advance of the Semenya hearing was, was really good. And that's, that's the reason they won it. I guess what becomes confusing is that when World Athletics were directing that athletes like Semenya were able to, if they were able to reduce their testosterone levels right. they'd then for, be able to compete at certain events and so that creates the idea that okay it's just about too much testosterone because once that goes down we're going to let you compete in events mm-hmm. so that's that's where the confusion comes in yeah. and in fact that's not accurate because you can't change a chromosomal <laughs> no. makeup no and it's actually but, it's but even, a, so the testosterone is almost insignificant in that respect in fact yeah so it's an interesting one and it's the same 
it's the same mistake, I'll call it that, that the authorities have made when they're trying to regulate trans women in women's sports mm. because they did the same thing. And, and you can understand the logic as they're saying, right, the reason that we have to have a policy at all is because of male performance advantage. Why does male performance advantage exist? Testosterone. So therefore, the root cause is the testosterone. If we take the testosterone away, problem solved. We mm. can include and be fair all at the mm. same time. Mm. And the problem is that a, you can't, because even when you take away testosterone, its effects persist beyond it. Yeah, for sure. Like there's a legacy effect and a, you, know, you can call it an asymmetry. Once it's done its work, you can't undo its work. You can take some of it away and not others. We've discussed this in the context of trance. But I think in this, in, in this particular instance, it created a red herring because, as you say, people got preoccupied with it. It's all about the testosterone. It's actually not. It's all about male advantage. Mm. And testosterone is simply the messenger that carries and creates that male advantage, mm. but it's actually it's actually male advantage. That's the issue here. Is mm. is you're not, you know, and there's a you can see that there's a fundamental difference. I think between saying here is an a female with high testosterone, polycystic ovary syndrome, for example, as opposed to here's a male with typical testosterone. <laughs> How you evaluate those two cases is really different. And one of the ways that it actually plays out, and this is one of the other things that Semenya said in the week in that same interview, is. Do you have unfair advantage? She's no, and of course I don't. If I had male advantage, why am I not running male times? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so this is actually really interesting because this also came up in the cast decision in the hearing, because they made the same play, and it's <coughs> excuse me, I've got a bit of a scratchy throat from travel, so I apologise for coughing. Um, the, the the argument is that if I have male advantage, I should be running male times, and I'm not. I'm running 153, 154. The men are running 142, 143. Well, no. Just because you have male advantage doesn't mean you're running male you times. Male. I mean, I'm not running sub two. Yeah. You're not running sub two. Ninety nine point nine percent of men are not running sub two. Yeah. The 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 point zero zero one who go to the Olympics are running 144, 145. But mm. it's obvious that you're not gonna just because you have biological advantage of male doesn't equal performance so, top, for, yeah. so, so it's another one of those where for so many to argue that is ludicrous mm. but she has to mm. you know what i mean she's it's it's a necessary defense that she has to make but she's opening herself up for quite rough criticism exactly. in that respect because it is a ludicrous and comment so, to so make. you know what though in, in she they made that case in the cast hearings you know what the world athletics response was mm. what would you how would you respond i this don't know how you respond to that because you it's not it's not based on any fact. This is this was the most for me. This was the most telling single thing in the world athletics response. Is they said we know that athletes with five ARD have not yet run male times, but that's just because they're relatively mediocre males. Mm. <laughs> and they called it. Eh? They did. Yeah. They literally said that. So, in in point two eighty nine of the CAS decision, I'm reading this to you verbatim. While no five ARD athlete has yet won a women's event by a margin of 10 to 12%, this fact has nothing to do with their condition. Rather, it reflects the fact that the particular athletes we have seen thus far are not as good as the best males. Like many other non-elite males, they still beat the very best biological females just by a smaller margin. Mm. So the, to, to their credit, World Athletics got this pitch and they batted it away. They said, yeah. we know you're not running male times, but that's just because you're not that good. Yeah. And you know what You know, what I think they learned was Pistorius made the same argument and they didn't mm. respond that way. Back in 20, 2008, I, I forget when it was. Mm. Pistorius was, remember- This is Oscar's Pistorius, yeah. of course. Yeah. This wasn't his latter infamous trial. This was mm. his trial about, do I have unfair advantage because mm. of my blades? And he said, if I had an unfair advantage, I'd be breaking the world record. Mm. I'd be running 41 seconds, not 45. 
World Athletics should have said then, no, mm. but that's just because you're a mediocre athlete with mm. good advantages. Mm. And they didn't mm. do it then. And I think they I think they learned. And eventually they had the conviction to get on the front foot and say, no. Yeah. It's because you, like other aired athletes, you're just not you're just not an elite male. No. And that's why you're running world class women's times mm. like the 16-year-old kid in Stellenbosch who's in the program I'm running. You know what I mean? He ran a 152 this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so, she, she's, so she has teed herself up for that. But again, she has to say it. Because to not say it would be to undermine the book mm. and her life's athletics achievements. Mm. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's kind of like I see all the criticism of her and I, I, don't, I get it. But it's also you're watching a you're watching mm. a production now. Everyone's mm. on a script a little yeah. bit. To some know? extent, she's trying to promote a book, I guess. Yeah, exactly, and and defend mm. and the promotion of the book is in defence of her life story. So she yeah. sort of has to do it. So I would be a little more sympathetic. The the one I'm not sympathetic to is they ask her about Lindsay Sharp, who was mm. I think sixth in Rio, definitely top six, might have been I forget exactly. Mm. And she gives a tearful interview to the BBC or one of the British media about saying how unfair it is and so on. Now, she's right because she is in the correct category having to race against people who are not. It's the same as a middleweight boxer who finds himself having to fight heavyweights. You'd, mm. you'd say this is not fair. So she's legitimately, I think, saying that. So Menya's asked about it and she says, yeah, Lindsay's a good runner. If she'd shut up and trained harder, maybe she'd have won a medal. Now that, that that's not, mm. that's not going to win you any sympathy when you know the, rea- the, the facts. And so she's she's made herself out there to be quite contemptuous of other people in denial of the facts, mm. which has been the least pleasant. Everything else I mm. understand, but I don't know. There was a way to navigate that maybe that she didn't take. Mm. I mean, potentially one of the most controversial parts, and you've touched on it very briefly there, is in the book, which you show me the picture. There's a picture of her as a what, 15-year-old um, at the beach, Basically dressed in literally just a pair of shorts and clearly representing herself as a as a male in that situation. She's not dressed female. Now, mm. one of the things that we've always heard from her is that she lived and she grew up as a female. She's brought up as female. She's always identified as being female. That picture tells a different story to that because she's certainly not dressing herself as a, as a female in that situation. Yeah. And 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 the book gives more detail. And, and she has done this many times. <coughs> she's talked a lot about her upbringing. She she wasn't doing a lot of female tasks. She was doing a lot of male tasks. So yeah. I suppose it asks it 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 raises the question: How much did she know about her own condition, um, and how was she being? Yeah deliberately honest about her decision or about her place it, it does words, it does yeah. and the more you learn about it the more you have to ask that question mm. but mm. at the like let me i won't cop out of it but i will say it, i don't really care yeah <laughs> initially like it almost doesn't matter to me like and it's the same even with the argument about my testicles don't make me any less of a woman like i would argue biologically they they very much do mm-hmm. but in terms of a gender construct and in terms of social roles and again maybe this is foreign for some people listening overseas but like in places where Castus Semenya grew up there are still very very mm-hmm. firm boundaries it's would very you call patriarchal it patriarchal society it's very yeah. patriarchal mm-hmm. there are women's roles there are men's roles mm-hmm. i'm all for breaking those like those gender mm. type roles stereotypes, like they don't matter to me when I watch an Olympic Games. Mm. Like whether you were, whether you were the had the girls' role in your village or the boy. Like I don't, I'm watching you run an 800. It's almost immaterial. Mm. And similarly, I don't know whether there was a point in Semenya's development from the age of 10, 11, 12 into puberty and adolescence where mm. suddenly she's like, I'm. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But it almost doesn't matter. Mm. The only thing that matters is. 
do you have male biological advantage in the sporting context? Yes or no? Yes. So therefore, everything else flows from that. As to the question, I, I, I saw that picture as well, and I, I don't, I genuinely don't know. She mm. studied sports science. She sat in, to her credit, in every minute of the CAS hearing. So every argument that we've just discussed and a hundred others, she's listened to and heard. I presume she's read many of the documents. She knows mm. the concepts behind this. She knows what ARD is. She knows all these things, but she's entitled to her own belief about identity. Mm. But that doesn't mean that you can just set aside the biological facts. You know, like, is that a, is that a cop out? I mean, I, you, can't, you can't read her mind. I will say the following is this ARD, about half of all cases that are identified are identified as girls at birth. That bit I believe mm. for Semenya. And then as they reach maturity and they get to puberty, they recognize that that was wrong. And so about half of them identify as boys once they reach adolescence. And so it's known as different things. In one country, it's called Tony Man Syndrome because they literally recognize it as turns into a man. This was, we identified you as a girl, we raised you as a girl, but now you're a man. And they, mm. that's how they, they call it, literally by what happens. In the process, I don't know where this changed for Semenya. She talks in the book about like going to the girls' bathroom and being chased out by the girls. Mm. I don't know whether Annika um, interviewed Annika yeah, Larson, the journalist, interviewed her. She talks about questions that were asked about her from her very first days of competing. Ah, oh, that's a boy running in the girls' race. So mm. clearly, she's known the perception. Mm. She now knows the facts and theories. She can't acknowledge them obviously because she's chosen something different. Mm. But again. <laughs> for me it's like biological you know mm. and it's a bit which, which which then brings up the other part of it is there's that element to it and then there is and this is the bit that i think again a lot of people don't gloss over but they don't treat with what i think is the necessary these these things are hell of a difficult eh? like i know someone who recently had to deal with a situation like this in sport going to someone who was playing a girl's sport and was identified for health reasons as needing some testing and screening and that screening revealed one of these conditions mm. incredibly tricky to deal with because mm. you're going to someone who has in and again who knows about semenya but this in this particular case has never thought of themselves differently as mm. a as a woman mm. and then suddenly imagine that bombshell no you're not you yeah and this this person was sensitive about it and said like it's the most difficult thing most difficult conversation i've ever had to have We've had to give this person psychological counseling support. We've had to give them medical support because there's all sorts of medical things that need to go along with it. These things are really tricky. And maybe in the Western world, like if you're in the States or Europe or something, you don't encounter this because they get picked up before birth. Yeah. Here in South Africa, this stuff's happening. Yeah. It's not picked up. And then you're 16, you pick it up. It's very difficult. Yeah. And, 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 and as and you've said on many different occasions, there's in every scenario, nobody wins in this situation. Yeah, exactly. and, and it's tragic in every way. Exactly. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you how you lose is the way that the sports have handled these athletes. And mm -hmm. so many is not even the worst of them. Like she tells in the book about the, because the, the invasiveness is of the ultrasound, because what you're looking for mm -hmm. is those internal testes. You've got to get this yeah. ultrasound wand into the body now. Like it's not, that's yeah. no fun, eh? No. I mean, but, but, uh, She's by no means the worst. There's a paper that came out describing case series in sport where they then heard testimony. Literally, they'd fly these athletes to a hospital in the south of France, put them up for a couple of nights, hotel, 
take them in for testing and treatment, surgical removal of those internal testes without getting consent, without disclosing to the yeah. athletes, like just awful stuff that was done yeah. in the name of defending the category. Yeah. And like, I think that stuff's indefensible. You have to, you have to defend the women's category. You can't just say, I'll carry on as you are identified. Like you'd have to have a boundary that you defend. Mm-hmm. But I do think the way that it's been handled in the past has been really awful. So I think those two things can coexist. And Semenya has had to endure in public what no one should. And so when she's angry, like, yeah, of course, <laughs> you would be too. And I would ask people to be like a little more understanding about that side of things. Yeah. But at the same time, we can't just set aside biological reality because someone wants us to. Mm. So it's a very tricky one. Like I, it's, uh, yeah. But for the sake of women's sport, you, you have to say, this is not a question of females with elevated testosterone. Yeah. And it's um, and I think that's one of the lessons I've sort of taken out of this is because like much like I've said and and, and much of the media says there's this misconception because of what's happened at wood athletics level and about the focus on testosterone so it's an understanding of the condition mm-hmm. um, which is important so yeah, yeah and the media is the media's not picked that up like the media are reporting this policy as if it's 2016 it's as if it's this yeah. time stopped. Mm. And, and they haven't recognized, you know, if, if, the, if the IWF World Athletics had never changed the paradigm away from women with hyperandrogenism to mm. males in female sport, that thing about why am I not running male times becomes actually quite hard to defend. Yeah. It becomes quite a philosophical question about the degree to which I get the advantage. Maybe there's a sort of intermediate position. But the moment they change their position, all those things kind of fell into place. Mm. And somehow the media just haven't recognized it, so, partly because they don't work hard enough to read the cast decisions, and partly because it's, it's I also think difficult also to like explain. A, it can be. It's a very difficult thing to explain in a news story. That's the, one of the challenges, I think, for me. How do you explain that to the average person out there about what DSDs are and how it relates? And because, mm-hmm. of course, everybody asks the most basic questions. Um, and those of you that listen to this podcast probably have a bit of information, but the average person out there to understand yeah. the condition is tricky. And Fair difficult on. to write. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, and, and that's why, like, that's why I credit to someone like Sean Ingle because Sean Ingle won't write an yeah, article Guardian, about it yeah. without saying Semenya was born mm. with XY chromosome in a condition yeah. that caused da da da. You know, so like, okay, it's there. And that's a statement mm. of fact. And how you use that fact is very much up to you. You know, like, mm. so there will be people who say, "Not her choice. She was re- like, let her compete." Okay, yeah. but as long as you do that honestly recognizing that by letting Semenya compete, you are allowing male advantage into women's sport. Mm-hmm. If you're happy with that, carry on. Yeah. But sport cannot be happy with that. It shouldn't be. And so it should mm-hmm. work, I think, harder to reject mm-hmm. arguments like, mm-hmm. in this context of sport, my testicles don't make me any less of a woman. Mm-hmm. Kind of that's kind of the whole point yeah. they do. Unfortunately, they do. And yeah. for gen- you are more than welcome to live your life in the identity you please, but this actually has consequences for females who have rights too. And so, so that's the problem. So mm. I don't think, yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to know because, like, I'm very aware that in Twitter now I'm seeing people who, yeah, I've, I've been blocked by all that. <laughs> so it's an echo chamber now. Um, has the has the book been well received? Because it's certainly her. It's creating her, news stories. Her promotion I mean, of the book has not yeah. been well received at all. I've seen a lot of people mm. saying I was quite sympathetic, but this contempt she shows for Lindsay Sharp, the mm. the the way that she's exp- like, no, we, we actually. But I don't think that's probably representative of the truth. Mm. And so one last point is, you know, she won the UN Human Rights Court. That's now being appealed. The human rights claim. Mm. The UN 
I think it was a 4-3 split, mm. said that her human rights had been violated, not by the policy, which is why it won't change. I mean, that couldn't anyway. This is the policy of what athletics. Yeah. yeah, not by the policy per se, but by the implementation of the policy. She didn't have the right to reasonable appeal and so on. So they, the Swiss courts have now said mm. they'll appeal that. So even the legal side of this thing is going to be dragged on and on and on for a little while longer. Just, just as a final point, just to update us, is she still in a position where if she lowered her testosterone, she'd be able to compete in female events? Yeah, she, she can. can still do that. It's a little bit different. She has the from choice. The, yeah. the policy is a little bit different from the policy that she appealed against in 2019. Back then, memory serves me, it was six months below five. Yeah. So you, you know, the female range is up to like the 99th percentile is three. So yeah. In fact, the average is one point something, and 99% of women mm. are below three. Men's range is normally considered to be 10 and up. World Athletics said five. You had to lower your testosterone to five mm. or lower for six months. In May this year, they changed it to two and a half for 12 months. Wow. So, for example, uh, the Namibian athlete Mboma, who won silver in Tokyo, is now eligible to compete because that 12-month period has elapsed. I saw an interview with her and her coach recently saying she's very much looking forward to the next Olympics. She wants to go to Paris and win another medal. She's running exactly the same times, even though she's lowered her testosterone. So that's going to be quite interesting to watch because- So that touches on the trans yeah, issue, yes. the fact that there's still yeah. male advantage in exactly. terms of her structure and, and muscular structure. Yeah, and, and one, yeah. Of the, one of the evidence pieces of evidence that World Athletics introduced in the Semenya case was a series of three or four athletes. I forget exactly. It was Bermont et al. I'll find it and pop it in the show notes in which they documented the effect of lowering testosterone on performance in these DSD cases. And they showed about 5.6% loss of performance in these 800. Mm. And that was about right for Semenya because she was running like 155s and then she slowed down to about a 159, two minutes for a season or two. And then when she was allowed back in without suppression, she went back to 154s. Um, there were a couple of others as well in that case series. So they were showing 5% loss. Remember the male-female gaps 10 to 12? Mm. So that implies you can take some male advantage away, but not all. Mm. So now with Mboma, who's running in the 200, she was a 22-second athlete. If she's running 22 next year, I mean, mm. she hasn't slowed down at all. Yeah. Despite the suppression of testosterone, which actually... I mean, it gets very messy because essentially you could get some... Uh, a male coming in there and reducing his testosterone well, and saying, I can compete in female events. Remember, they, they, I mean, they can't. Like, so this, can is where, this is where it is really messy, is that World Athletics, at the same time that they announced that policy, they announced their trans policy, which mm. says no males in women's sport. Yeah. So remember, World okay. Athletics excludes trans women from women's events, mm. but they don't exclude DSD males from women's events. Mm. And that, why would that be? Because biologically, they are the same. The only difference is legally, one was identified as a girl at birth and the other one is identifying themselves after birth yeah. as being a woman. You know, make, Okay, so there is, so, there is some control there. Yeah, yes. Mm. It's certainly over a male identifying as a woman and mm. saying, I'm not going to run in the women's events. Athletics, swimming, rugby, as we know, uh, cycling now, also this year, have all appropriately, in my opinion, protected women's sport by excluding males. But it's interesting, athletics... Athletics has almost compromised that for the DSD athletes. I think in part is like a hat tip to the ethical legal com complexity of the mm, case. Mm. You know, like they've sort of, it's almost, a, it's almost like we are sympathetic towards these rare events. And so we're going to allow these males to compete with low testosterone, but not those ones. Mm, mm. <laughs> Even though biologically they are the same. Mm, mm. And, and, and that's why 
if Mboma, if Mboma does this and she runs 21.6s, 21.7s, okay, she'll have to run faster to beat Sherika Jackson maybe. Mm. But it'll be interesting because it'll be, again, more evidence that taking away the testosterone doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so keep an eye on that yeah. one. But, but uh, Semenya's 32. Well, I mean, we, she, she could run. She's just said she's never going to take mm. the poison. She calls it poison in the... Yeah. In the in the book, and she describes, and she's not the only one who's described pretty nasty side effects of having to, to lower your testosterone that much, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're dealing with people who've got testosterone in the twenties now yeah. down to n- nothing. Yeah, it's going to. It have is an a it is a biological you. shock. Yeah, different from a woman taking a contraceptive pill. Mm. You know, this is a bit different. So, it's not, mm. and and even here, ethically, maybe this is the last word. Is if if the treatment doesn't take away the advantage, then what's the point of taking it? Mm. All you're doing is creating like side effects and potential harm. That's why sport, I don't think, can justify a testosterone reduction strategy. It doesn't work and it's unethical. But then what is the solution? Males in male sport, females in female sport. Mm. Same as yeah, they've done then, then, you, then you're down to what defines male, female, et cetera, et cetera. A little bit in that sense. Does, but it, just come down, does it come down to just chromosomes then? Bi- it's, for me, biology, yeah. It's mm. exactly what it is. You know? So if you're and, a Y chromosome, you're male. If you're, unless, you're not. unless you're completely incapable of using the testosterone because you have mm-hmm. androgen insensitivity syndrome. But that's <laughs> not an ARD. Yes, it is a, it's a complicated story, isn't it? <laughs> Gee whiz. So, sort of, it is. Yeah. And, because you know, potentially there's always going to be athletes like this throughout history I mean there they are have they probably and they have, yes they have been 19, they will continue to be 1930s was the first one Stella Walsh was the famous one and again in the retelling of these they might get lost a little bit but the story with Stella Walsh was won all these medals Polish then settled I think in Ohio gets killed in a bank robbery because of that it's an autopsy mandatory autopsy if, if, uh, discovers ambiguous genitalia oh everyone says this was a man competing in women's mm-hmm. sport into the 1950s, there were a whole bunch of athletes from the Eastern Bloc countries who were accused of men. They were, they were accused as men masquerading in women's sports. Mm-hmm. A lot of them probably were what was that back then called intersex, but actually it's these DST conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a story of a cross-country skier called Eric Schinniger, same condition as Semenya, discovers, wins Olympic uh, medals in downhill skiing, discovers the condition, actually changes to, sorry, Erika Schinniger, was mm-hmm. competing in women, discovers this issue, changes to Eric Schoeniger, gave the medals back, said it's not fair that I won these medals in women's skiing. I was never a woman. Wow. So it has happened in sports sure. where actually the person has come out and said mm-hmm. the anti-Semenya um, yeah. life story. So, that, yeah, you can look all these things up and, and, and read about them. So, yeah, it's it's happened. And it's happened when we did the Semenya case, like South America, Middle East, Eastern Europe, Southern Sub-Saharan Africa, that's where these conditions are now. They used to be very prevalent in the Eastern European countries. Mm. So the book is out. The Rest of You Myself, a memoir by Cassius Semenya. If it's something that really interests you, you want to delve into the depths of it, it's worth looking at it and looking at it with a, a critical eye, I guess, based on what we've been talking about. But uh, it certainly gives you a lot of insight and some quite graphic details about her life, a uh, very tragic life in many ways. Anyway, let's move on to uh, something else. And uh, last week we talked, touched a little bit about um, the, the whole idea of carbohydrates and the overuse of carbohydrates and how a lot of the top teams were claiming that they were super carbohydrating when they were doing rides. And one of the things we talked about was uh, the fact that you could actually your body would respond to carbohydrates and the glucose fructose if you just 
use a mouthwash. In other words, if you put some of that stuff in your mouth, it, your body will then respond. Um, Simon from Sydney, one of our patrons, uh, then contacted us and said, well, actually, he found a paper that uh, was titled, and I'll read it to you very quickly if my phone will open quickly, Understanding the Oral Mucosal Absorption and Resulting Clinical Pharmacokinetics of Aspenine, which basically talks about the fact that there is absorption through the mouth, and it isn't just a placebo effect and that in fact there are drugs that do get absorbed through the mouth and um, therefore he was questioning whether we were accurate in that and um, I, I guess the first question is maybe there is some absorption but how much is well, my first question is what's a centipede because yes. you sent me that link and i said Geez, what is that is that like turns out it's a drug used to treat schizophrenia right so i'm not immediately sure that its absorption is the same as sugar as, yes <laughs> so okay. but i guess the point True. he's trying to make is that you can absorb stuff in the mouth Mm. Fine, that's fine. Like, and, and as we said like last week, inside this in, gut is still outside the body. Mm. It's got to get in somehow. Mm. And it's definitely plausible that some uptake can happen in the mouth. But think about the volume. Mm. If, you, if, you, if you use like a mouth rinse method, where it's just a sort of sip and then you spit it out. Yes, because there is evidence, as we discussed last week, of somebody. Yeah, and it's actually, it's not one of those one study never yeah. re redone. Like there were a dozen or so, and I provided a link um, last week where out of the dozen studies like nine have found a meaningful effect on performance um, but think about the volume I mean mm. what volume can possibly be absorbed in the mouth when you spit it out anyway great it's like a tiny volume I mean it must be teaspoons worth well he was commenting so, that his, his girlfriend says that when she's doing endurance events that she basically sucks a sweet for the whole time the absorption the constant absorption of some sort of carbohydrate through the mouth actually she feels makes a difference. <laughs> it might make a difference, but it's making a difference by acting on some central nervous system process, not fuel utilization in the muscle. Because so the, even continually sucking a sweet's going to not. Because be what's the volume of a sweet? I mean, how many yeah. how many grams of carb could be in one sucking sweet? And if yeah. you, even if you suck nonstop for three hours, <laughs> mm. you're still going to be like in the in the grams, you know. Mm. When in actual have fact, a tired mouth. I mean, there's actually been some quite good correspondence on on. Uh, Patron Jan Geiselaars emailed me with a bunch of questions, most of which I don't know the answer to. Uh, <laughs> we've had some other like really good stuff on Instagram. Ronan McLaughlin got in touch; he enjoyed it. He he, he works for um, Escape Collective now, and they do some podcasts. One of which is now called the Performance Project. I think it's. Let me not misquote that. Anyway, Ronan McLaughlin is the Everesting world record holder. Oh wow! Okay, and we'll get him on the show because he's because yes, um, he's ace and he does definitely this definitely got to talk to him he does this are you thinking of Everesting I'm, I'm I've been thinking about Everesting for a long time but whether I actually do it or not oh. for those of you who don't know what Everesting is and for new to the it, it's a cycling uh, challenge which means that you ride up a hill so many times that you basically collect as many kilometers as you um, kilometers and um, for sorry meters in height in other words to reach the top of the Everest which is 8,848 meters so the idea is that you try and do it in the minimum amount of time with the minimum amount of well not necessarily distance but yeah. time yeah so, so in other words he's reached that 8,848 meters in the minimum amount of time yes, yes. and uh, yes he's the world record holder in that now and he said yeah, to me well, got a chat to him. he sent me yeah and so I was in touch with him he said um, because for me the most interesting thing still is like you got Inigo San Milan saying yeah. That athletes innovate. Yeah. athletes innovate ahead of the science. But in the meanwhile, we discovered last week papers from 2004, 2008, yet it hadn't reached the pro peloton. So which is it? Is it science was late or the athletes late to adopting? Can't be both. No. So it's a, yeah. it's a funny thing. Anyway, he mailed in touch with that and he said, for all the chats in the context now of Everesting, 
all the chat of roads and bike weights and tailwinds, it was fueling that was the opportunity for Everesting. It's as much an eating competition as a climbing challenge. I hit 140 grams an hour for seven hours. Yeah, we know so that the previous the, level was 60 grams per hour. Yeah, that's what they used They're to say. They're pushing them to 90, 100. So 140 yeah, is... Yeah, that's what he said. 140 for seven hours. So that's, that's like over a kilogram, almost a kilogram and a half. No, wait, how's my maths? No, it's almost Don't a kilogram. Maths. It's a kilogram of carbs, basically. If you, if you do 170 in seven hours, it's just under a kilogram of carbohydrates. <laughs> wow. Now, how many sweets in a kilogram? Yeah. You see, it's not... It's not it's not conceivable that you're I mean, actually no, he, supplying energy yeah. that way. So when we talk to him, we've got to ask him, how did he manage to consume that amount well, of carbohydrates and not get sick? Right, because now that I've been had my rubber arm twisted to ride this DC race, that's 200 k's. <laughs> I'm responsible And for I know that. it's going to be like, it's going to be eight, nine hours for us. You know, we're going to have yeah. a nice day out with the group. <laughs> I say, okay, I'm going to have to start out. practicing my fueling. And so on Monday, Tuesday, I went and did like 90 k. I say, I'm going to try and go for 60 grams an hour. I was so sick. Really? At yeah. 60 grams an hour? Yeah, because I'm so unused to, because normally yeah, we, we, I'm you also know, terrible with we that. don't, we don't feel. No, we don't. Because we know there's a coffee stop every hour. <laughs> That's how we ride. <laughs> so like, if, and if you're hungry, you just stop at the first coffee shop, not yeah. the third one. You know what I mean? Like, it's never a problem. Or you stop it's, at the, at the cafe a for, a, for a Coke. So, so I, say, I say I'm going to take some jelly babies and some water and so on. I'm going to just like force myself. By the time I got off the bike, I felt like I was having stomach cramps. Mm. My mouth felt like I'd been at the dentist. That's amazing. So it takes a lot of practice to get used to it. Because we talked a bit about that, getting the gut used to that yeah, sort of and So that's what I'm trying to do now. Yeah. So I'll do that on Sunday when we do our long ride as well. It's just trying to overfeed, see mm. if I can hit 80 grams an hour. Mm. But mm. 140, like Ronan, wow. It's incredible. So the, the podcast is called The Performance Process, by the way. Okay. Mm. And it's one of those that's available to subscribers of Escape Collective. But I highly, like they did a great show this week on aero testing, how you mm. can practically, without getting into a wind tunnel, mm. how do you know what's more aero on your bike mm. and your setup and your equipment mm. so anyway I'd love, to, I'd love to get him on the show it's been a bucket list guest for a while Definitely. but more more to the point like you just cannot suck in our sweets to literally mm. fuel I think what you are doing is you're probably central nervous system driving it Ben got in touch on Patreon and he linked to a podcast which I'll also include in the show notes and Tim Noakes talks about carbs as a central nervous system stimulant mm. now Tim's got I think some questionable <laughs> views on carbs because we know carbs are not just a central nervous system yeah. stimulant. They are literally fuel at the level of the muscle also. Mm. And if it was possible to get away without them, people would have by now. But I do think there is a central nervous system component to carbohydrates. And that's probably what the mouthwash, yeah. mouth rinsing method is doing. Yeah, well, thanks, Simon. It was an interesting discussion we had even before we did this podcast on our WhatsApp group and uh, just chatting about that. So thank you for sharing that information. Just to look back at some other news, um, the marathon world record uh, basically shattered, if you can call it that. Calvin Kiptum in the Chicago Marathon running two hours and 35 seconds and beating uh, Kipchoge's record by 34 seconds. That's what he ran in the 2022 Berlin Marathon. So, I mean, this was... I, I hate to say this, I didn't watch it live and I struggled to watch the New York Marathon, which happened a couple of days ago live because it's kind of becoming a bit of a procession, these records, and they're becoming so frequent now that they've kind of lost their gloss. I mean, there's huge celebration. The saddest thing 
and it's I'm digressing slightly about the Chicago thing is when Calvin Kipton came across the line, it was almost an empty finish line. There was hardly anybody there, and there was just a couple of his sort of support teams that support him. Whereas in Berlin, you have crowds lining the the last bit of section after the Brandenburg Gate. In Chicago, there's virtually nobody there at the finish. Yeah. But but in saying just, all that, it, it was a remarkable performance, and I've got a book that sits in my cupboard um in my bookshelf which which has got this the, it's called 159 and i can't remember who wrote it now and it's, i got it about three or four years Ed ago it's caesar right i think it was, Ed I think it was. It was and it talks there, about yeah. the likelihood of a sub two hour marathon and how <laughs> unlikely it was and we were talked about this a few years ago yeah. it is now looking that without all the i'm not talking about kipchoge's manufactured sub two yeah, yeah, yeah. does it look likely we're going to see a sub two legitimately in a race now yeah it does actually i mean 35 seconds yeah that's if he does okay Hard to do the same thing again, but if he does it again, he'd run one second out, right? Because he was 34 seconds off. He was, right? he was 30, he took, 35. So his official time was. He took, but he took 34. 2035. Yeah. So he needs to take. He took 34 seconds off the record. So you've got to do the same thing again. Mm. Chicago has never been thought of as as fast as Berlin, but clearly. Yeah, we've seen men's the right world records. Yeah. And, and the women's world record was also Chicago. Remember yeah. when Costco did it? Yeah. So yeah, you got to think like it's funny. Someone sent me an article that I wrote in like two thousand and nine on a website back then, and it was funny like a reading it and seeing how poorly written it was. Mm. You know, it's like when you look at like a kid's your, your childhood stuff and you think, did I actually write this? But I remember saying then like it would be thirty, forty years before we could even think about it, and here we are within fifteen. It's extraordinary. And I do think that's we know why that is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we know if it's, it's the shoots, yeah. but it's it's but it's interesting to think like okay. Men and women now, we've got world record holders who've broken that world record in their third marathon mm. without much pedigree before them. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, the women's one was the same, eh? Like, you said, it's Yeah, like he's, it's he's that guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Kipton, similar. So there's obviously like a lot well, of... Kipton did, did the fastest ever debut in <laughs> yes. 2022. Valencia did a 2.153, which is, in relatively speaking, much slower. And then what he did in... We, we said he'd be the next world record holder after London because mm. he, broke, he broke 60 in the second half in London. That's right. Which yeah. is twisty and it's sometimes a little bit windy and it's not the fastest second half. And yeah, I did 2.125 in London. And that was with a sub 60 yeah. second half. So that's the guy. Second fastest marathon ever at that time. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. now he's done a 59.47 second half here. Mm. So it's quite clear. Like, But then I think, well, who, who, other than him, who would it be? It's like it's not. Well, he's definitely the favorite to do it, isn't he? For sure. Especially if you look at his trajectory. By, by a lot. Mm. On the women's side, it's different because I think there's five or six women who are all okay I said that might be one level above everyone else we'll see in time but but yeah that's the new it's new standard the sport's recalibrated that's what's simple as that isn't it yeah I mean what's interesting and I've got some of the splits here and this is what I find quite fascinating is that at the 5k mark he went through 5ks in 1426 and Kipchoge when he did his record was 1414 so he was way off at the 5k mark He's slower at 10Ks. He's slower at 15Ks, exactly. He's slower at 20Ks um, by quite a distance. So 20Ks, the, the 15 to 20Ks, he does 14.30 compared to 14.12. But then he picks it up. From 25 kilometers, he's basically square with Kipchoge. At 30 kilometers, he's basically square. At 35 kilometers, he does 13.51 between 30 and 35 kilometers, compared to 14.30 for Kipchoge. 
Then at 40, 35 to 40 kilometers, he does 14.01. So he runs a really fast split there compared to 14.43 for Kipchoge. And then the last um, sort of 2.195 kilometers, he runs a 6.12 compared to Kipchoge 6.16. So between 30 and 40 kilometers, that's when he makes up all of his time. And he's literally... If you look at it, comfortably under twenty-eight minutes, eh? yeah, so 20, it's, it's twenty-seven fifty for ten k. Yeah, but that yeah. that that negative split. Mm. If you looked at the start of that race, you would have thought, well, there's no way he's going to beat his time based on his starting split, because he's way behind at twenty-one k's. But actually, he's in fact at twenty k's, he he's run fifty-seven thirty-nine compared to Kipchoge's fifty-six forty-five. So it's a minute. Which is a fair amount at that level. Yeah, it's but he makes it up fifty meters. Eh? Yeah. Like it's a lot. He makes it up in so the second half. So way to do half. it, eh? You know, neg- and Kipchoge, yeah. I think, is an even split marathon. Yes, but Kipchoge's just running this big negative split, and yeah. it suggests like if he runs Paris in the Olympics next year, it'll be hard to beat because would he run Paris though? And he can make so much money at the big city marathons. If I was Kipton, I wouldn't. But he's running. Him. He's going to. Ro- he's going to Rotterdam in April. Is he? Which is interesting in itself because who goes to Rotterdam? Mm. <laughs> Apparently, his agent is the director there. Ah. So he's not going to London or Boston or any of the big city. Well, I suppose Rotterdam is a big city marathon. Let's not do it a disservice, mm. but it's not one of the. It's not one of the prestige ones, right? Mm. So that's interesting in itself. Is he'll go Rotterdam, and then will he will he go Berlin to try and break two hours, or will he go to? Sure, the Kenyans would want him in the Olympic marathon team. Yeah, but I mean, we've talked a bit about the fact that those Olympics World Championships are—they're not—they're not as then yeah, and also you're not going to run a fast time, mm. and he's got the potential. Why waste? When I say waste, but why waste an Olympic Games and hot conditions when you can potentially earn a, a huge payday and running a sub two? Yeah, unless your yeah. sponsor says we'll pay you as much to win the Olympics as we would to win uh, Berlin. Yeah. But I can't see that. It'll be, it'll be interesting because, like, they're not exactly spoiled for choice yeah. in Kenya, but he is now so far and away the best guy. Yeah. Like, it's clear. I mean, like he is the new Kipchoge. Yeah. 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 Sure. So, I mean, they'll, they'll take Kipchoge to Paris for sure. He's already, I think, stated that mm. he wants to. Oh, he's an old man now, isn't he? Thirty-eight, be next year, I think. Yeah, and that's if you. That's 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 by birth registration. He yes. might be even older. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, it's. Uh, uh, it, so, so like Rotterdam is okay, but I mean, if it's but if you don't get perfect conditions, you're not breaking two hours. Yeah. You're not breaking the world record. And then if he if he did go to Paris next year, would be out. So when are we going to see a sub two? 25, 26 maybe? Mm. If it's not Kiptum, who else? I mean, who's the next guy? Like, who, who knows? I mean, Valencia's coming up soon. Maybe we'll see a sub 201 there. Yeah, because Valencia is like, an extremely fast course. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, like, and you just, you just, the marathon now is just not the same. Yeah. Like, I, I've, I've not even slightly surprised when a guy comes out and runs 201, 202, and I've never heard of him. Yeah. Like, because right. there's a lot okay. of them yeah exactly same thing on the women's side like 214s 215s debuts okay cool you know it's remember 215 Paula Radcliffe untouchable yeah for, for a long years. time yeah so yeah it's just a different it's just been recalibrated now yeah you yeah. missed a good race in New York though on the women's side I'll I tell know, you that I'm like, sad about that yeah, and tell, that's me, where, tell that's, me a bit about it well it was slow because there was no incentive for them to run fast because mm. you know that the park Central Park is going to slow the race down, so you're not going to see 214, 215. So they say, well, what's the difference between 219 and 224? Nothing really. So then it becomes tactical, and then it's exciting. Mm. And so you had Abiri against um, Gide, 
which I think must be the most <laughs> contrasting style athletes that you could possibly imagine in the last True. 400 meters. Like Gide is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Iberi, let's say, is not, mm. but is unbelievably effective. In fact, one of our patrons is Jay, Jay Grunker, who runs the Balanced Runner, and she posts videos on running form. Mm. And so you can find a video she's done on Helen Iberi and talks about how she uses her arms and so on. I mean, Iberi looked like she's going to run herself off her feet. Mm. She's very gangly. Yeah. And uh, mm. yeah, but anyway, so she outkicks Gide in the last sort of 400 meters up a hill mm. in to, to win that in Central Park. It was exciting. The men's race was super boring. Mm. It was fast, but it wasn't really anything to Taller watch. winning that one, yeah. As they came over the bridge into Manhattan, he went away with another Ethiopian. And of course, Greece. record though, wasn't it? The men's race. Yeah, and that was the last big city marathon record. And it mm. was the oldest. Now it's obviously the newest. Sub 205 in New York, which is really good. So like, I mean, but as a race spectacle, it was a great performance, but as a race spectacle, nothing to get too excited it's mm. not memorable whereas the women's race I think was actually very good you know last year's winner was third also they were all together with like 1k to go so it was it was pretty good yeah I mean the coverage was rubbish though oh my goodness oh, the oh. women's race so so a couple of things because the women were so slow and the men were so fast the men nearly caught the women which yes, would have been chaos like yes. because then they wouldn't know what to do yeah as it as it was with the women had like 800 meters to go they cut to the men's race couldn't believe it <laughs> what, are you do- what are you doing? Like, you've got three women and you could see it's shifting and it's building, building, building. And then they cut to the men's race where the one black's two minutes ahead of second place. Yeah. I mean, it's as if, it's as if, it's as if TV coverage is given nightmare. to people who don't know what the sport no, involves. No, I know. I do find American coverage of Americans quite poor generally. I think some of the commentating is also Unreal. quite terrible. I mean, terrible. the women's race was so I good. Know. And then we, go, we leave it to watch one guy running solo. Anyway, luckily Mm. they got back to it by the time they hit the last. Because I I think the most amazing thing is that, and I say this coming from a media perspective, is that how a sport is presented on television is so critical to whether so it's basically for its to support base, but also to its future popularity and also whether it brings people into the sport. And we look at, for example, things like cycling at the moment who have done a huge amount mm. in terms of commentary there's a huge focus on commentary there's a lot of information that they get through the bikes that show you what's happening on the course but it's always <coughs> like marathon running has kind of <coughs> stagnated a bit in that you don't have that excitement and it's almost a sport when you watch it that's designed for the puritan you know it's the guy that the the, the it's not designed for the masses to understand the sport and i think that's kind of sad because in a way it doesn't engender the same level of interest that you would all the same spectacle as you get on with many so other what would you do then if you had three uh, innovations that you could introduce to to london and new york berlin boston next year i think you have to have real time i think things like real time speed is important they do have some of that but they don't show it enough they need to have track and field tried that eh? yeah, like sometimes gimmickly mm. like you'll watch a 1500 meter race and they show you the gap between two runners you're like I, d- mm. I don't really need that i can see that the one guy's a meter behind the other one mm. Mm. stupid but like i get your point yeah and yeah. if we, when you accelerate you must want to be able to see that somehow and say right there's an acceleration going here and and i think the level of the commentating it's it's almost seems to some extent and i, I think the boston marathon is a prime example it almost feels like uh, the, the the character from the simpsons ned flanders is always the <laughs> it's his voice that almost I don't know who the commentator is but it sounds like him you know and I'm not I mean I've commentated on television and I've commentated on many different events and I know it's very unfair to criticise commentators because they each have their own 
mixed to it. But there is a certain level of excitement and and, and commentary makes a huge difference mm. to the excitement of the sport. And, and many of sports, Formula One, you know, with people like yeah, yeah, uh, Murray Walker. That might be the gold standard, actually. Yeah, I mean, and Murray uh, Walker was probably a, uh, uh, like a museum piece. In a yes. sport that evolved, like, but now the the package, not just commentary actually, but the package around Formula One is so good. It's ex- excellent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's still a, it's still Murray Walker was the one who kind of established. And same thing with Phil Liggett in cycling. As much as there are criticisms of him, he was the one who established the popularity of the sport mm. because of his ability as a commentator. Like, what you need is a guy who's insightful but exciting. Yeah, to listen to, and then you need a technical guy. Huh? Yeah, like that. That's that, exactly that partnership what you is the. You need a commentator and an expert. Yeah. So like in New York, for instance, Galen Rupp was their on-course expert. Yes. And the the bits that I heard, because I struggled for a feed, I was in London. He was actually quite good Mm. because he gave insight that you wouldn't otherwise hear. And then I'm starting to think to myself, like, actually what I want, what I'm complimentary of is more technical stuff. Mm. But what you just said is that it's almost pitching it at the purest and it's not catering to the lower guy. So Mm. what's the sweet spot between mm. actually because you know what you know what gets me like i know exactly which commentator you're talking about is in boston he'll say these men are so fast mm. and then he'll tell you you go down to your club and run 100 meters in this time that's how fast they are. i hate when they do mm. that mm. <laughs> he's it's almost to, like dumbing it down yeah, you know yeah. and when i watch good coverage of like nfl they don't dumb it down they actually pitch it in a way that's quite challenging to to watch and i like that mm. so should mm. marathon running try and reduce itself to the park runner who runs twice a week, or should it actually embrace its specialist technical mm. content? You know what I mean? Yeah, but there's, there's a balance between those two things. You mm. know, and, I, and when I and I think about when I watch the Chicago Marathon and watching a world record happening in front of no crowd, that's the fault of the organisers. They need to create a spectacle. Berlin does mm. it brilliantly. London does it brilliantly. New York does it brilliantly. Um, but Chicago does it terribly. It's sad to see a world record happening and nobody's there to see it except people watching on television. It just looks makes it look like some sort of local race. All of those things make the sport the spectacle it is. And I think we talked a lot about the fact that in this podcast that at some stage records are begin are, are, are going to plateau it, it must do at some stage yeah therefore the competition then the race the women's race in new york should be the standard we want to watch a race that competes therefore should we have pace it is for instance the events mm. i still don't believe we should um, and again new york doesn't yes and it makes for great it makes racing. for a great race. no, exactly no. so no. No. anyway do so, you yeah. want fast times or great racing i'd take great racing every time yeah because i couldn't mm. visually if there was no clock on the screen yeah. and if they didn't time the race i wouldn't be able to tell you the difference yeah. between a 208 and a 202 exactly but i would definitely tell you the difference between five people in the last mile and one guy owning all myself and i that's know which one i choose to watch that's why championship racing and world championships and olympic games yeah, is so yeah, good yeah, because on the track because it's 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 there's no pace setters um yeah and trying it creates to, a jeopardy that doesn't exist yeah, in a yeah, paced race like ingebrigtsen is never losing a paced race yes but he may never win a 1500 unpaced yeah that's the great storyline. That's the great storyline ahead of the Paris Olympic Correct. Games, right? Is, yeah. is Ingebrigtsen going to figure out a gold fifteen hundred? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like uh, it's <laughs> and it's interesting because the same conversation came up all the time during the Rugby World Cup: is does rugby embrace its technicalities, or does it try and appeal to the casual fan? Mm. And you get two camps. They say the ca- like so the final, for instance. Mm. So a lot of criticism of the final, like and most of it coming out of New Zealand. I wonder why, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
saying like it's anti-rugby. This is not how the sport wants to look on its biggest stage. But meanwhile, the people who really love the sport are saying this was one of the great finals, loved it, absolutely yeah. enthralling because they understand what they're watching. And so what does the sport do? Does it want to... Doesn't want to penetrate like new markets, which requires like sacrificing some of its technicality and authenticity, or does it want to appeal to its mm. loyal customer base? And I'm in the latter camp, I think. Yeah, you know, I would I'll, rather. I'll you know, the tension that exists, <coughs> and we mentioned it last week, is you've got you've got guys on Twitter who do so, such good work, like doing technical analysis and coverage and so on. And then you got the mainstream media, and they sort of pander to the masses. <laughs> so, so there's like a tension where. Yeah, and it's interesting, like cycling, cycling's similar, I think. I mean, if you, if I watch cycling with like Leanne, mm. she doesn't understand why there's a group of guys five this is minutes, yeah, <laughs> five, five minutes up the road, mm. and I say, no, nah, they're going to get caught. Then the very next day, five minutes up the road, this break's going to go away. Mm. They're going to succeed. Oh, how do you know? What's the difference? No, it's just the subtle context. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like to the casual fan, yeah. that's like a mystery. Yeah. So what should cycling do? Should it? Ex- yeah. You know what I mean? It's- yeah. It appeals to its fan base. It's true. Yeah. But then a lot of people who don't watch cycling, who are not necessarily yeah. cycling fans, watch it because they like the scenery. And I often get that as well. My mum's like that. Yeah, exactly. Like a Tour de France time. Like Amazing. Yeah. Three-week tour package. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't care about who's gone in the break. He just wants yeah. to see the castles. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. My dad's the same. He says, I don't like it when they do like laps. Mm. So Because then I see the same thing over and over. I mm. say, I love it when they do laps yeah, yeah, because I learn too, the yeah. pattern and I know when the attack's going to come. Like in mm. Glasgow at World Champs. Mm. I say, no, I know where the big hill is. I know where Funapool and Funart. And... Anyway, mm. anyway <laughs> laboring the, the point now a little bit. So, so final um, news story, I think, of the day. And this has uh, kind of highlighted the, um, the, the, the doping passport, which has been around for a number of years now. And this is the story of the Kazakhstan former um, Kenyan athlete, Nora Jaruto, who was cleared of doping charges um, this week and um, she it's a quite a complicated one because she was she's obviously the former world 3000 meter steeple cha- steeple champion she won that title in Eugene in 2022 yeah so um, big name that's, big, that's so she's a big, big name. name big name um, but she was eventually cleared and it is complicated because it, it was a blood doping uh, that's kind of what, from what I've read it's the it's a blood doping test or not yeah. non-test or uh, I don't so, know yeah so it's called an AD ADRV, anti-doping rule violation. Right, there we Call go. Call it a positive test. Yes. But it's not a positive test because we found a banned substance in your body. It's a positive test because we found evidence of manipulation of your body by doping methods. Mm. Makes a difference, right? As evidenced by as your in, passport. Yeah, as in, it's not that we found testosterone or EPO or anything in your urine or blood. It's that we found irregularities in your blood profile so large and unexplainable that we, we in this instance being the Athletics Integrity Unit, mm-hmm. believe that we had enough to ban you as a doper. On appeal, that's been overturned. So in, in a way, it's quite a big story because it's a, it's, a, it's a blow to the biological passport. And that's and it's a blow to the ARU. It's not their first loss in a while. I mean, they lost the uh, Toby Amisan appeal, you know, the Nigerian hurdler, mm. back at uh, just before Budapest Worlds this year. So that's a couple of cases now that they've lost on appeal. So they've probably got to look at the process a little bit there and so on. But this one, this one's pretty interesting because the biological passport doesn't often get tested like this, and it's it's failed this test. That's well, the reality. Are, I mean, like we can be blunt about it. It's a, mm-hmm. The biological passport was used to issue an anti-doping rule violation, and it's been overturned. 
but there are some extenuating circumstances that you, yeah, like you, it's it's difficult to say that it's a precedent, isn't it? Because it's weirdness. Like you know, the biological passport was introduced in two thousand nine. Mm. And the, you know, it's, do we want to go into the premise of it? It's well, let's just uh, for those of so, the listeners that are not sure what a biological passport is, let's just explain it briefly. So the challenge, the challenge for for anti-doping and the problem that needed to be solved by the passport is that anti-doping was reliant on detecting a substance in the body, and by the time the athlete competes, the substance has left the body, but its benefits are still there. So in other words, I was using a drug for a certain period. I stopped using it. In order to be clean, I'm still a doper, but at the time I was tested, I looked like a clean athlete. That's yeah. a that's a challenge, right? So, mm-hmm. and and the best analogy I've ever heard is 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 if you if you imagine conceptually like a long dark tunnel and there's a car traveling through this tunnel at 120k an hour, anti-doping is trying to shine a light on that car at the exact moment that it comes past it. Yeah, very difficult. <laughs> so unless you unless you literally have a light every second along that journey, you're probably missing that car. It epitomizes the doping struggle, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. So what what the biological passport was intended to do was to measure the physiological change in response to doping, not the presence of the drug. And initially, the thought was, let's do this for all drugs, but for various reasons, it's much more challenging with steroid hormones like testosterone, growth hormone, insulin-like growth factor. But where it was feasible was blood manipulation. So when an athlete is doping with EPO or taking blood out, putting blood back in, they're trying to boost the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. Those actions, EPO use, withdrawal, infusion, change the composition of the blood in a logical and predictable way. Makes sense, right? Yeah. I take blood out, my red blood cell count goes down. That's <laughs> obvious. It's exactly what I've done. I've removed. It's like it's like emptying your cupboard of all the tins of tuna. <laughs> There's less tuna in the cupboard, obviously. <laughs> so so uh, well, that's an interesting point. So if you take, uh, you know, if you're blood doping, in other words, at high altitude, you take your blood out of your body. You're saying it's certainly the percentage of blood uh, of plasma versus red blood cells stays the same in the body, even if you remove some. It corrects itself. It corrects itself. But in that, in the immediate aftermath of giving, like if you take 500 mils of whole blood out, Mm -hmm. you're going to feel it because now all of a sudden, remember your red blood cells are the oxygen carriers. So effectively, they are transporters of oxygen. And if you remove enough blood, you have reduced the transport capacity. It's right. the, forget to reduce the forget, volume. <laughs> forget tuna in a cupboard. I don't know where that analogy yeah. came from. Let's try to go with... Um, Normally your energies are quite good. Yeah, the tuna in a cupboard. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking there. Uh, let's talk about cars on the road. Yeah. Taxis. So like, okay, let's let's take 10% of the taxis off the road. We can no longer transport people. Mm. And that's the situation in the blood. I remove blood, hemoglobin levels drop, my hematocrit, which is the percentage of the blood occupied by cells, is down. So in the immediate window after withdrawal, that's the change I'd see. A couple of days after that, my body's responding to the blood loss by making new blood, because that's what it does. It's clever. And so now we measure something different. We see more young blood cells because we're seeing a process of adaptation to blood removal. Makes sense? Yeah. EPO, same thing. It's a hormone that drives blood cell formation. So if I used EPO on a Monday, by Thursday, Friday, I'm seeing an increase in new blood cell formation. By the following week, I'm seeing more red blood cells. So there are predictable changes in the blood composition and makeup that reveal, this is the theory, 
whether or not you've blood doped, removed blood, infused blood, used EPR. Makes sense, right? Which means you have to have done a certain amount of tests to create a baseline. Or because, because, yeah. because the degree to which those things vary from day to day, from week to week, from month to month, differs from you to me. Yeah. So what, what the biological passport premise was is that if we test longitudinally over time and we establish a certain pattern, we can look for variations in that pattern where all of a sudden a drop in red blood cells might indicate one thing. An increase in reticulocytes, which is young, immature blood, red blood cells, indicates a different thing. And so the change and the pattern of that change, the timing and the size of that change are the indicators of blood doping. And that was the premise of the passport. Mm-hmm. Great concept, because all of a sudden meant that we no longer had to find EPO in your urine or blood. We no longer had to catch you taking your blood out. We could actually just measure the effect of that change. The, the problem is that the risk of a false positive is high enough that you have to be quite conservative about acting on that data. Makes sense? Because there is such a thing as natural variation. Mm. I go to altitude for a camp and my red blood cell count will go up. I come down from altitude, my red blood cell formation will come down. And so there is natural variation caused by dehydration, hard training. There's a whole bunch of different things that affect it. So the the upper and lower limits beyond which change becomes unusual have to be necessarily wide. Makes mm. sense. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to start saying blood doping, and actually, all it is is altitude camp. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the problem for the passport, and that's the incidentally the reason the steroid passport has been harder to get off the ground is because that volatility is even greater there. For the for the blood stuff, at least it's feasible there. And they only introduced the steroid passport this year for the mm. first time, so it's a challenge. When the passport was first introduced, one of the first challenges it faced was an Italian cyclist called Franco Pelazzotti. Pelazzotti. And mm-hmm. his argument was that his unusual blood readings were the result of blood loss caused by a stomach ulcer. Because what he was saying, remember the theory is, if I take blood out because I'm going to be naughty with it and store it up and use it in a few months' time, there's a measurable change to my blood in the immediate aftermath of that withdrawal. He's saying the same thing happened to him because of an ulcer. And so he he challenged the passport on that basis and lost. And it was a big moment. I remember talking to guys, York Olaf Schumacher, who had been involved in development of the passport. He says it was a real significant victory because it was the first time that the biological passport had been tested in a legal setting and it passed that test. Experts... Mm discussed and assessed and so on and they decided that an ulcer couldn't be the reason for the for the for the changes it had to have been removal of blood Geruto one of her defenses was a stomach ulcer yeah. and she's she's won it so so to, that's a long way to answer your question about precedent is I don't know because the sporting legal system isn't a precedent based system they evaluate every case as though it's the first mm. but but it is a significant moment I think it's significant because Geruto was able to convince them of two things. One is that her sudden loss of red blood cells in March 2020 was the consequence of a peptic ulcer. Mm. And later on, she was able to convince them that a sudden increase in red blood cells was the result of a medical condition. So, I mean, there must be some evidence that a, a peptic ulcer has an effect yeah. on red blood cells. I mean, there must be some scientific evidence that yeah, would prove no. that otherwise they wouldn't have taken it seriously. No, and I'm nobody's idea of a gastroenterologist, but in the mm. decision, and I'll post a link to this, at Geruto's appeal, because now what happens, remember, the AIU says you're guilty of a rule violation. Mm-hmm. She then has the right to appeal, and that's what this this came out earlier she this week. She appeals with the disciplinary tribunal. Yeah. 
And that is that that's not part of the IIU. That's just no, a it's separate a necessary, body. It's a necessary legal vehicle that any athlete has the right to right. appeal. So it's an independent tribunal okay. that then she goes to with her legal team and her experts, and they have a gastroenterologist and they have a blood hematologist mm. because they're gonna you see then and then the AIU's got their gastroenterologist and hematologist, and they have a debate basically that's how it works it's a tribunal and they have a debate and then the the panelists three of them assess this and say who's more credible who do we believe and then they make their decision right and so yeah so she has a hematologist and and uh the um aiu has a hematologist and so for instance point 54 the athlete's anemia in 2021 and 2020 uh 2020 and 21 was consistent with blood loss from gastrointestinal bleeding from a peptic ulcer disease. He relied on her. She said she vomited and had blood in her diarrhea. So she was she was claiming she lost blood. Now the reason this matters, just to take one step back, is and in the document you'll see a collection of samples going all the way back to 2016 for her for Nori mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The 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 samples in question were in March 2020 and. Her hemoglobin level, which up to that point was always in the high 14s, low 15s. I'm looking here, 15, 3, 15, 1, 15, 6, 15, 1, 14, 4, 15, 12.8, 13.6. Hmm. That's, a, that's a large drop in hemoglobin. With it, reticulocytes, which is young blood cells, goes from 1.1, 0.7, 1.5, 1.1, 4.3, 3.7. So the pattern is loss of red blood cells formation of new blood cells. So that, in the AIU's interpretation, has to have meant removal of blood and the response to make new blood, blood withdrawal. Right. Her explanation, loss of blood because of a peptic ulcer, vomiting blood, diarrhea with blood in it. That's that's point one with that debate. Okay. Okay. Makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Not, not convinced. No, 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 it makes total sense, but I'm, I'm just, it just seems unlikely i'm not that i know enough about peptic ulcers yeah, yeah. Ne- neither that, do i so like, yeah. and, and unfortunately yeah. like the cast decision runs into hundreds of, for semenya runs into mm. hundreds of pages and they really explain this they don't really give you in this decision like a good insight into what the experts debated yeah so you kind of like left a little bit unsure but what's really interesting about this is that and this is the, if you if you were like uncertain before wait till you hear this one <laughs> so they 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 talk about the, the experts and how they debate and the one the AIU's expert says it's not possible to lose enough blood in diarrhea and vomiting yes. to account for these changes exactly her, her experts say well it is okay so it's a he said she said thing right but they never even rule on it because what they say is point 51 in our judgment this simply does not work as a for the AIU to argue this assume for a moment that the athlete did withdraw blood with a view to subsequent administration of blood in breach of M1 which is a protocol the withdrawal cannot of itself constitute an attempt to administer blood any more than the purchase of a gun for a nefarious purpose can constitute attempted murder. <laughs> That's what they say in the doc. It's, it's unbelievable. Okay. Yeah. So, you know what they're saying? So they're saying, they're saying she might have withdrawn blood, but that's not, she's not guilty of anything. She's not guilty of anything by withdrawing blood, yes. Exactly. And yeah. so, so they re- when they refer to M1 here, it's pretty interesting because I looked up what this means. M1 is a prohibited method in the water code, and it literally says the administration or reintroduction of any quantity of autologous, homologous, or heterologous blood 
or red blood cell products. So in other words, putting it in, in. is illegal. Yeah. But withdrawing it is not. Yes. And so even if she'd taken it out, until you could prove that she intended and did put it back in, there's no crime. <laughs> yes. There's no offense, right? And that those blood values no. don't suggest you put it back in. Not not at that time. Yes. But we'll get to we'll get to okay, that. All right. What's yeah. interesting is that M three, well point three under M one, says the following are prohibited. Any form of intravascular manipulation of the blood or blood components by physical or chemical means. I'm not sure why the ARU didn't argue that could apply to the withdrawal of blood. Mm. Because when I withdraw blood, I am manipulating the blood by physical means. Yes. Like, so uh, clear, clearly it's not. And in fact, I'm obviously like legally not confident enough to say this, but in the document, the ARU itself admit that the withdrawal of blood is not in and of itself an offense. So if you withdraw blood, does it, and you, you talked about the young blood cells, does that not, con- <coughs> in other words, there, there's no there's no advantage to withdrawing blood. You talked about the fact that it, it, it generates young blood cells. Are they, are they better than mature blood cells in that respect? No, so, because so there because isn't a benefit. Because there's a life no. cycle of blood cells right, anyway. Yeah. So when, when yeah. those, it's like those cars, you know, those cars are going to like depreciate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And their tires are going to go mm. bald and their engines will fail. Then they just get replaced by new taxis. Yeah. And so, so the body so, so the only the advantage is the only advantage is putting in the so, the, the the good blood correct. when you and need that, it. That was right. the practice from the 1970s. The practice was take it out. Put it back in. Yeah. Take, take it, it out, out at altitude. Put it back in. Not even at altitude. Anytime. Really? Take, yeah, yeah. You don't need because there's red blood cells or red blood cells. So what you're going to get when you put it back in is that sudden boost. More cars uh, on the road, as it so were. So it's more, not necessarily dependent on taking it at high altitude. No, when no, you no, put no, a higher no, component. No, you just you just want red blood cells that are available to take. So you're just like, increasing volume. At that immediate increase in volume. Right. And that's the method. So and the reason you do it with your own blood is because it overcomes certain risks mm. you know Tyler Hamilton's book talks about how they used to use anyone's blood yeah as long as it was the right type and then you can get all sorts and that Hamilton speaks in the book about guys like having serious medical emergencies yes. so you take it out you store it for a period and then you reinfuse it and that's what they're doing but it's okay. the reinfusion that's obviously the problem it's like it's interesting that no athlete has ever said I'm a blood donor mm. like to try and explain it because that that could do it that's yeah. a, enough. Maybe, maybe not. You know, I donated a mm. lot of blood because mm. family emergency mm. or something. But mm. then you got to prove medical records. Prove it, you yeah. see, that's the thing. Yeah. And did she prove peptic ulcer? Yeah. Turns out she didn't need to because mm. the <laughs> withdrawal cannot of itself constitute an attempt yeah. to administer blood any more yeah. than the purchase of a gun. Yeah. So they, so they almost, they almost say, oh, maybe it was an ulcer, maybe it was withdrawal. Mm. Doesn't, Doesn't matter. matter. Then the second part of the decision concerns two samples that were taken in September of 2020. So they were... So that is what, six months after... Yeah. yeah. And this is where I really wish this decision gave us a little bit more. Because these experts would have produced like documents, right? Mm. That are submitted like with their expert interpretation of the results and exactly what's happened. But basically, in September of that year, she gives a couple of samples where the... Hematocrit levels are up and the reticulocyte levels are considerably higher as well. And so they talk about sample 17 to 19, September, three samples collected in September 2020. The AIU are saying that this shows that she must have used EPO at different doses because what's happened is she's had an increase in the reticulocyte fraction, red blood cell width and so forth. Uh, I'll give you the exact numbers of these these things now. So all of a sudden, hematocrit 
which remember buying those two low ones was 15, 14, high 14s, goes to 16.1, 17.1, 16.1. So how do you get the spike in red blood cells? How do you get an increase in reticular side mm. fractions? AIU says must be EPO use. Right. Because you're getting a simultaneous increase in red blood cells and reticular sites. Right. So you're driving blood cell formation. Mm. Make sense? Yeah. Her expert argues that it has to be the consequence of an, or it could be the consequence of an illness. And the illness in question, and this takes us back to September 2020, is COVID. Mm. What's, what's most interesting about this is that Jalima, not, not, not uh, Jaruta, Jaruta yeah. doesn't herself say that she had COVID. She says she was sick. She says that she went to a hospital and they told her she had tuberculosis. So like, we also had to, at this point, 62, we had to take into account the athlete's own evidence about her illness in August and September 2020. She was sufficiently unwell that she went to hospital. The evidence was that she was told that she did not have COVID-19, but was told she had tuberculosis. Right. The panel has decided that her evidence, her blood sample could be explained by COVID-19. <laughs> That's the thing she was told she didn't have. <laughs> I yeah, can't understand yeah. how they... I mean, again, it asks, it, it begs the question whether COVID-19 suddenly sees an increase in red blood cells. What? what? Apparently, like, so she's got an expert called Dr. Brandt's evidence. This is point 59. The combination of high percentage of reticular sites, increased red cell width, and no corresponding increase in red percent are consistent with a COVID-19 infection, which causes stimulated, isolated erythropoiesis. So the theory is that COVID does drive red blood cell formation. I didn't know that until I read this, and yeah. I don't know any more about it than that statement. Yeah. Someone, someone well, who obviously, studies obviously some study that proves that, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Brandt, who's the athlete's witness, expert witness, put this to Prof. Don Ofria, who's the AIU hematology guy, well-known actually in anti-doping world. He's a, one of the guys who does all the passport stuff. In an exchange between experts, Prof. Don Ofria said he did not think the results could be related to a mild infection and were more consistent with EPO injection in small doses. World Athletics criticized Dr. Brandt's evidence because notwithstanding his hematological experience, he has no experience of the biological passport and D'Onofrio's evidence should be considered more reliable. World Athletics also criticized Dr. Brandt for having changed his position and a lack of reference to stress erythropoiesis in his first report. So when he first had to account for her unusual blood values, he didn't mention stress caused by illness and only later did he add it in. And they're saying, well, now he's just fitting the facts, he's fitting the the facts to the story. So despite all this though, in conclusion, we found the factual evidence somewhat unsatisfactory in relation to this period. The biological passport showed abnormal results consistent with relatively low dose of EPO, which would be an ADRV. We did not find resolution of this charge easy. We accept there was room for the view that Dr. Brand's conclusions were somewhat speculative. Now, you read that and you're like, okay, they're teeing up a rejection of the athlete's appeal. However, (laughs) the majority of the panel is persuaded that having heard the experts and recognizing that all the experts were distinguished practitioners the sample results might also be explained by a bout of COVID-19. The thing they told us she didn't have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not yeah. tuberculosis, COVID-19. Well, they're, they're then saying that her, her, um, her diagnosis was wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're, saying that, yeah. they're saying that now, in 2023, we are going to say it was more likely COVID, mm-hmm. even at the time, in September 2020, 
They said it wasn't. Maybe they said it was at a rural hospital or something must like that. Be, yeah. Must be. Like, yeah. And that's where the, they don't instance, see the this doctors is fine, right? Because yeah. you want, yeah, actually want those doctors to talk about it. Like, so the process mm. looks a bit um, shallow to me. <laughs> On balance, we cannot say World Athletics have proved their case so that we are comfortably satisfied. While we recognize compelling arguments were made, we, there is sufficient doubt on the part of the case that we unfair to convict the athletes. Thus, point sixty six, we dismiss the charges. So yeah, sure. it's, just, it's a it's a weird because the way the passport works is that there's a statistical flag of a sample, which is then seen by an, an expert. Mm-hmm. That expert says, okay, I can see why this is unusual, and I think it's likely doping. Then it goes to three independent assessors. So they've built all these checks and balances in to make sure that they don't inadvertently accuse someone of doping. Then what happens is they say, right, our account, and I attended a conference, a water conference in Rome. It's fascinating because they'd show like a passport profile on the screen and they'd say, right, now discuss among yourselves, small group exercise. And then these experts say, right, the timing, that increase, this decrease, that could be EPO, that could be withdrawal. And they have to create a storyline off the data. Mm. The athlete withdrew the blood on this date, they put it back in on this date. And, and then they give that to the athlete and the athlete has to counter explain. Say, no, this was a peptic ulcer and then I was sick. And then it's a question of whose story is more plausible. And what this decision unfortunately does is it invites like a even withdrawal yeah like, okay so she and i guess i could see that maybe she did withdraw blood because her relative was sick yeah. i mean okay she could have said that but yeah. still yeah. and she didn't disclose a peptic yeah. ulcer at the time of the sample like, mm. there's, there's things there to protect the athlete against mm. this you're like if you have a blood sample taken you should say Oh, you know what? I've actually got an ulcer. I've been vomiting blood for the last week. Yeah, you think she'd maybe that. disclose that at the time, not three years later when you're yeah, charged. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it does sound a bit suspicious that. <laughs> and then the idea that then the idea that you'll say, "Oh, it could have been COVID," when the athlete herself has said, "What? Well, I didn't have COVID." Yeah. I mean, they've almost. That's almost like um, where you sort of get nudged in the direction of an excuse. But mm. just listen. I'll tell you what to say. Just, just get say, your story yeah, right, yeah. here, please. Yeah, I mean, I, so your first rea- first reaction when you saw that was it's incredible that she's kind of been cleared here because there's so much <laughs> conflicting evidence. Well, I, I don't know whether it necessarily diminishes the value of the of the blood passport because it's it's not like somebody can say, well, this happened to me exactly the same way because yeah, that, every case that combination, every case is treated independently and nobody's going to go there and say, I had peptic ulcer and then six months later I had COVID and therefore I'm giving you the same excuses you know, mm. she did I, t- I tell you what it might do though is like if you're the ARU you might think a fourth time now because <laughs> the thing is they don't mm. just bring a case they yeah. think once they think twice mm. they put it through a third check and then mm. they bring the case that's no, not random yeah, no. yeah like it's mm. actually quite onerous they've got to have unanimous agreement between three independent mm. people assessing it that there's a plausible doping explanation for the mm. numbers I'm seeing on the page mm. that's how they mm. and it's it's done that way to try and like mm. shore up and, and reduce the risk of that false positive this exact scenario yeah, they will now be a little shyer, I think, to bring a passport case. But and that might not be the worst thing because the the passport is very rarely responsible for catching athletes. Asbel Kiprop, I think, is a passport case. More often than not, well, no, actually, he's not a passport case. He was a EPO case who they target tested because of the passport. And that's the point I was trying to get to, and I've gotten to somewhat clumsily, is what the passport has, I think, been useful for is identifying unusual patterns that aren't quite strong enough to say doper 
but are definitely strong enough to say something funny going on here. Let's test like crazy on this athlete. So then, mm. then it, it 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 becomes a tool to guide target testing. Yeah, um, and I mean so, we're trying to decide. I mean we don't know yeah. what what testing a lot is compared to testing minimal. As it sounds like she's been tested quite a lot. Yeah, between the first between the first of those suspicious samples and like 2022, there were 23 tests in like two years. Mm. Now, yeah. is that a lot? On I would imagine that's quite high. Like, I would high, imagine yeah. that your Olympic champion guys are probably getting one a month, one every two months, batches around competitions mm. and so on. But but the passport is still going to be useful as a as a as a guide towards suspicion mm. that then informs targeted testing mm. but as a as a standalone doping conviction tool hasn't caught many and now it's lost a case so that's and now there's talk of the passport being able to use power values and cycling yeah. potentially i mean there you, and talk, that's you not, touched on steroid passport how difficult that is to do yeah, so yeah, yeah. it could be it could become advanced but again there are lots of questions particularly yeah, so on the, the guy, power side and again i'm going to put all this in the show notes for you mm. so you'll have it the guy who, who did that was uh uh, who was it? Mikel Zabala. Mikel, Mikel Zabala, who's a physiologist out of Spain, a sports scientist and a professional cycling coach. And they've got a paper, which is not new, it's from March, called Anti-Doping 2.0. Is it time to add power data to the biological passport? Mm. The idea being similar to the passport itself is that the, the point of doping is to change the blood to enable the performance. And we can... We used to measure the substance. Now we measure the blood. Can we also measure the performance? Yeah. So it's kind of like if we have another piece of information. Where it gets tricky is that the performance is so variable mm. depending on time of year and so forth. So you'd have to you'd have to really be like systematic and controlled in how you measure it because what you measure from Jonas Vinegar in March compared to June compared to October will be quite different whereas the physiology won't be as different. Mm. Like I think it'll be more consistent. Mm -hmm. So not a new concept. I remember going to the Tour de France conference. There's a scientific conference the week before the tour back in Leeds in 2014. A guy called James Hopker was presenting performance profiling as a potential anti-doping tool. And I do think it's useful. There's mm. potential for it, right? Because donkeys don't become racehorses unless there's some suspicion. Yeah, you know, and there must be an explanation mm. for it. And we've seen that on the tour when you suddenly well, see a, a guy who's not normally a climber suddenly climbing with the best, and yeah, exactly. it makes you think. Hang on a minute. You see that in running. I mean, like the, you see athletes who've never run sub four minute fifteen hundreds for women. Nice thing, running three fifty sevens, fifty eights. Remember that London twenty twelve? All those Turkish women, like mm. they were all done for doping. Mm. There've mm. been loads of cases like it. So. So I do think the sudden emergence and sudden improvements, and I guess what they're saying here is that if you measured power output enough and you had some metric, but yeah, it's it's tough, eh? Because like athletes do improve, yeah, and they do get worse. So and, and yeah, so whatever the huge. whatever the noise and the normal variation is in the blood, imagine what it looks like for performance. Mm. And mm. to try and relate two noisy things to one another mm. could be quite tricky. But I think it's a, I think it's definitely a conversation worth having mm. because I do think. Look, you, you can have too much information, but I'd rather have more information and and discard it than not know and be clueless. And suddenly, you see a whole bunch of cyclists; their power meters are broken. Well, that's the other. That's the, that's was always the thing they said is like, oh, you can't trust the power meter. It's no, like yeah. calibration wise and so on. Yeah. And that's true. Like, because if the if the margin created by doping was three or four percent, mm. but the variation in power output accuracy was five percent because of yeah. calibration, it's no, so no, useless. Yeah. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. 
So speak, speaking of just out of interest, did you see Chris Froome said the other day that he discovered a problem in his bike setup since he joined with um, Israel Premier Tech where his setup was, his saddle was a couple of centimeters too low and his reach on the stem was like three centimeters different from what he's used mm-hmm. to. And now he's changed it and he thinks he can perform again. Right. Well, we'll just have to see I mean, if he does that. If I, if I, if, if you, if you went in for a coffee break and I lowered your saddle by a centimeter, I'd how feel quickly, it. how quickly would you pick it up when we I, start I, riding again? Well, maybe not pick it up because you wouldn't expect it. But I know that I, and I'm talking cycling specifically, I'm very sensitive to saddle height and I can pick it I, up when it's dropped to centimeters. And if I lengthened your stem by a few centimeters. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's, almost, it's inconceivable know. to me that you could be riding along and not realize that there were that, such big mistakes in your setup. I just, yeah. I, I just saw it and I just had to laugh. Like, I just. <laughs> well, I suppose laugh. he has to justify the reason why he hasn't done well so far. He hasn't stopped justifying. Who yeah, he so he knows. So anyway, I'm a bit of a fan of Chris Froome. I think he's had a bit of a, you know, I think at the end of his career is should have ended a few years ago. But he's obviously got a contract he has to fulfil with Israel Premier Tech and I saw, uh, has to keep him keep him going somehow. He's got a very entertaining YouTube channel actually, which I find quite fascinating and interesting to watch. I but, saw a tweet by Benji Nazan, who's one half of that Lantern Rouge podcast which is also a really good one. We yeah, recommended a couple there. Excellent, yeah. I'd like to get him on, actually. They were in London, you know. There was a there was a big cycling convention in London called, and I've forgotten the name of it now. But I was I, I should have gone, and I, like they were there, and I should have gone. So I'm sorry, mm-hmm. next time. But anyway, I tweeted something about that Troom story, and he says, like, something about from Batman. If you stick around long enough, you become the meme. That's a great line. Anyway, thanks very much, Professor Rostake, as usual. Uh, some great news stories to uh, focus on. And uh, lots happening in the world of sport, of course. The Cricket World Cup, which uh, is taking place in India at the moment. That's quite fascinating. And uh, lots of semifinals about to be happening there. So keep an eye on that. And, um, of course, the end of the year stuff is happening. I think the Formula One season has just finished as well. Um, so we'll be able to wrap up hopefully in the next couple of uh, months or or a couple of weeks actually or kind of wrap up of the year but uh, keep an eye on the crickets uh, but for now it's goodbye thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports ipod and on instagram at science of sport podcast deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.